Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I am thrilled to have the amazing Elizabeth Cummings joining me today. Now, Elizabeth was born in Manchester, educated in Scotland, has lived in Australia and New Zealand for many years. She graduated from Edinburgh University and then trained as a primary school teacher, enjoying a varied teaching career, including teaching in both the public and independent sectors, working with refugees and specialising in special needs and language teaching. She moved to Australia in 2008 and ran a foreign language business before beginning her writing career. Her stories often take a child's perspective to explain the world and reflect on important life experiences, including themes of resilience, grief, equality, the natural environment, kindness, empowerment, anti-bullying and mental health. She is a mental health advocate and writes and speaks about mental well-being and health topics, including eating disorders. She's also a lived experience expert, having been a carer for her daughter during her eating disorder recovery journey. She's currently completing a master's in counselling and psychotherapy and is researching contemporary literature in the area of eating disorders, as well as serving as a co-chair for the AED blog. Well, you've just got a few things that you're doing, haven't you? It's been a long life. <laughs> it's been a long life. How amazing. It sounds like such a variety of things that you've been doing. Thank you. Well, thank you for that introduction. That was um, really wonderful. And I'm, I'm honoured to be here and talking to you today and, and really grateful for the work you're doing in the area. So thank you. Oh, look, it's my absolute pleasure. It's always wonderful to hear from parents who want to share their knowledge in this eating disorder journey because I think so often as parents and carers, the focus is on the loved one and it's just as much of a battle for you guys in there because you're really in the trenches uh, yeah, with your loved one. Yes, so true. That is that's very true. And it takes there's always the old adage it takes a village to raise a child, but in times of need it you really need your herd of elephants, you really need the people around you to support you in recovery and and also as one of those people in somebody's recovery journey, you need to be supported too. So I'm a great believer in that community engagement and also the support for those who are supporting the people making the very brave journey to wellness again. Oh, it's absolutely essential. So firstly, why don't you give our listeners an insight into the impact eating disorders have had on your family and hence why you are so passionate about raising awareness for eating disorders? Wow. My daughter became ill with anorexia nervosa uh, in her early teens. We hadn't long moved to Sydney and we had noticed changes in how, how, how she was behaving and, and then began to be concerned and thought, began to seek help. And it took quite a long time to get the right help. Once we got the right help and we got the right education and we were supported by an incredible team, our daughter's journey to recovery was able to begin. And so I was hugely grateful, uh, in particular to our GP, who had developed an interest in 
eating disorders as somebody who had come across it with her patients. And although she was not a specialist in eating disorders, she noticed that there was a need in her practice and she became very involved and kind of learned along the way and grew professionally and enjoyed that experience, if you can say enjoyed. So she was a very special person, but also our pediatrician who worked with us had an amazing insight and uh, I just couldn't speak highly enough of uh, Michael Cohen for, for his work in this area. And he gave us the light bulb moments when we finally were at this point where we were having intervention and we were um, having the initial appointment with um, Dr. Cohen. Um, we were, uh, I got a call from him and he said, would you like to bring the whole family, who's the family members and, and who's coming to the appointment? And I said, oh, it'll just be my husband and myself. And he said, and your daughter, I said, yes. And any other children? I said, yeah, but they're not ill, so not they don't need to come. And he said, aha, I need the whole family there. And at this point, you have to understand that my husband and I, despite my psychology background, despite my understanding of the need to remove stigma and that type of thing from mental health generally, I was under the impression that I should keep my daughter's illness hidden from my primary school aged other child because I, I felt that her life was innocent and didn't need to be impacted by this distressful thing with eating disorder. So I thought, oh no, you can't involve her. And so he quickly <laughs> said to me that it was the only way to, to be involved in treatment was to include the whole family. So I brought her along and it was a light bulb moment. And it was then I realized that without engaging the whole family and even the, the very young ones, so my younger daughter was about eight at the time, um, having that engagement with the whole family and having the, the, the open discussion in that safe space was the way to best help the whole family and to also work in that wellness journey with my daughter who was unwell. So after that moment, I began thinking very, taking a long hard look at myself and thinking I've got it all wrong. We do need to share about this. And I, I had gone back after the disappointment where my daughter had then been able to ask the questions and the doctor had spoken to her as directly as anyone else about her concerns. And then I mentioned to the primary school teacher, hey, we have this appointment and just quietly on the side, you, just in case anything comes up for the younger, this is for the younger child. I said, she's not unwell, but she came along to this appointment. Well, the primary teacher looked at me and she said, well, I'm so glad you've come to me. And I said, what do you mean? She said, we could not work out what was going on with your younger daughter. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, we, we just got this feeling that something wasn't right. We couldn't put our finger on it. And I'm glad you've come to me because we were about to call you in and have a chat. And I just, I felt wonderful and terrible all at once that, that firstly, we had done the right thing by following the advice and then by bringing it up with the primary teacher. But it also felt terrible that I hadn't even realized how this was impacting my other daughter, like my trying to hide it was just not working and it was not the right thing to do, clearly. And and she was instrumental in helping her sister recover. And she was little and the need for in-depth scientific jargonized terminology wasn't needed for her to understand her role as a sibling and, and what she meant and how she needed to be able to help uh, as part of the whole healing for the family, I guess. And so from that began my journey in communicating that to others. And I published a book on that type of subject matter, focusing on the sibling, uh, called The Disappearing Sister, that, that dealt with an eating disorder, but in terms of the relationship between the siblings. And I started speaking at uh, eating disorder conferences and outreaching to therapy workers and clinicians about this and sharing this this knowledge that I had come to understand through my own experience. So that's where that journey started. And that was uh, many years ago now, uh, over 10 years ago. Yeah. What an amazing thing to write a book on. I think it's so important that we look at the we look at the impact that it has siblings. I know that my mum did the similar thing to you and spoke to the school of my brother who was four years younger than me. 
And they definitely had noticed behavioural changes and things like that because they don't know how to process this. Like they're watching their beloved sibling go through something that they've got no comprehension of. And so, and they're trying to just be good and stay quiet and not cause any trouble. Um, And the focus is over here and they're sort of left. And so I think it's so wonderful to talk about this. Yes, and in fact, there is a sort of term, glass children, and it's sort of used in terms of uh, widely when you have an ill child and then you have other children in the family who who are the glass children because uh, you just look through that and you're focusing on that immediate uh, distress, trauma, need to take action. And of course, a child who's acutely ill, whatever that illness, uh, does merit and, and need that immediate attention and focus. However, everybody else around can be drawn into that and the needs of each individual in the family still remain. So, so for other children, you often, and as a teacher, I've seen this in, in many areas. So this was why also it was, it was such a, a sort of a revelation to me that even working as a teacher, even noticing in terms of my students when they were um, perhaps going through things that I couldn't. When I was writing it myself, I couldn't see what was in front of me. Uh, and uh, and understanding that really helped. And it helped m- me have a um, renewed view of what was going on. That this just, just wasn't of oh, someone not eating or someone being I- ill. It was how that was all... Uh, communicated and managed in a broader setting because that is so important. When you have a, a, a person who uh, ha- has an eating disorder, the whole way communication and care is given, it, it's so important to get it right. So you actually do more damage than good with the sort of language you use and the sort of environment you're setting. And everyone's so terribly anxious. Everyone's so, so worried because it's such a, a serious, serious illness. Uh, and it, we come to it with a lot of emotional baggage and misinformation and fear. So we're coming in with that with all our anxiety. And of course, our kids who know us best um, are going to pick up on that. And that anxiety doesn't help the person who's ill because they're already that distressed state. And what they need is that secure, supportive boundary of others being all right so that they can help them and make those brave steps. So it makes a lot of sense when you start unpacking it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Did you ever think that your family would be touched by an eating disorder? Was it on your radar? Did I think that? I I don't know. I don't think so. I I was so surprised because my daughter who was ill was always, she was a girl guide. She, so she loved all that, you know, cake stalls and baking and getting involved. And we loved, we loved home cooking and um, going out to restaurants and sort of um, food related things were never, was never a problem. She was very, she had never really been ill. I think she'd maybe had chicken pox or she had never really been ill. So I had this well child who's been very well adjusted around food. And then suddenly I had a, a young teenager who, who was terribly impacted by anorexia and it I began to see signs, I began to be concerned, but it took a while to be able to get that actioned into diagnosis, into intervention. So it was several, several months in which time she, she became more and more unwell. Which she, in hindsight, maybe she would have become ill anyway, but I think the shortening time frame of these illnesses is only going to benefit. The shorter time you can be ill, the more time you have of a well life. And that's what the ultimate goal is, really. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we look at it from an NLP perspective and we look at neural pathways, the longer you have it, the more ingrained that they are. Yeah. It would have been great if I could have had mine for like, say, six months rather than 15 years. Yes. Would have taken a lot yes. less time to uh, rewire yes. the brain. And it's hard work. And I think this whole understanding now we have of the neural pathways and the, the, the plasticity we can, how we can work with that for recovery it has been enlightening for the community, for, for those working in the area and wider. And you see it's being discussed in, in wider 
psychology, psychology conversations. But I think there's that misunderstanding that you have by people saying, well, they're just not eating. Well, they're not just not eating. Their brain is not processing information in the way. So it's not, in many ways, it's not, it's not about the food and it's not about the eating. It's about the way the brain is wiring and firing. And I think until there's more widely understood knowledge of that, we're still going to be working hard against misinformation and sometimes unhelpful uh, or lack of support and resources. And I think we've come a long way, but there's a long way to go. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. In Carolyn's eight keys to recovery, there's one chapter yeah. that's like, it's all about the food. The other one says, it's not about the food. And, and yeah. yeah, it's so, so important that that people yeah recognise and realise that. What yeah. was the hardest part for you as a parent navigating eating disorder recovery with your daughter? Um, what was the part that you found the toughest? I think... What was tough is having to put aside that sense of having failed your child, which purpose of the parent is to help your child, your baby thrive into an independent adult. And eating disorders so fundamentally goes against that because it, it, it connects him with the nurture. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you, in terms of, you see yourself as not being able to nurture your own child. And that's terribly distressing and you're looking for answers. And that's very hard. What helped me in that hard space was coming to the realization that looking back at the past and trying to find answers at that time wasn't actually going to make my daughter better or take away what had been going on. I had to uh, put that to the side. So I guess that's an element of putting ego aside, but I don't. It, it was more that parental need to understand and make meaning, and I had to deal with what was in the present, what was from it in front of me now and accept that I might never know the definitive answer um, but but I could see looking back various things that might have been indicators whether we could have ever stopped this happening before it happened uh, it, it, in some way it's irrelevant we were in this situation she needed to become better so that was hard the other hard thing was um, my family uh, lived in the UK and we were here in Australia so I was without support and they, families were on the phone trying to support, but I was coping. We were coping so well, but when it came to sort of picking up the phone, trying to talk to family about it, I find I could, couldn't even string sentences together about it. it. I was obviously going through so much trauma and just sort of managing it. <laughs> I would just go phone and pass it to my husband to speak to my mother because it, it was too difficult to unpack it after we've been working um, with her all day and obviously you know um, throughout the day going up to school and helping her get to meet and um, the many many appointments and things so it, it, that was the consuming nature of that journey for her but it, you know when I looked at her that's when I realized this is the hardest part is, is, is watching her having to go because she she has to do this and however hard it is for us I can't it's, it's a drop in the ocean to how hard it is to 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 work in, in recovery with, with uh, when you're ill with an eating disorder, it's a, it's a very, very uh, hard thing to do. And it's the bravest thing people do. So and I look at your journey and look at my daughter's journey and many others. I just, um, I'm so humbled that, that, I, that, I'm, that, I, that I've been able to help someone in their journey, but at the same time acknowledge that um, the hardship I went through was, it was nothing compared to actually doing it yourself. Um, that, that's the hardest. And, and seeing the, the impact on my younger daughter, that was hard. Yeah, yeah. If there are parents or carers out there listening who mm. are blaming themselves for the development of their loved one's eating disorder, what, would you, what do you want to say to them? People want to problem solve and want to fix it and feel that they should be able to do it, I would say you, 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 going down that pathway is self-sabotaging. It's not going to help the child recover. And be kind to yourself. You're being the best parent that you were trying to be. Eating disorders happen. They are an illness. We have many, many illnesses in our world. And it is a terrible illness. But it's not somebody's fault. 
Um, there are many, many things. So some people develop eating disorders as a result of a trauma or of another virus or of, there are many factors and reasons that, but two people might have the same experience and one of them then becomes ill with an eating disorder and the other doesn't. So you see that sometimes with twins, you see, you see people tell stories um, or people, for instance, like we moved here and my daughter has been living in New Zealand, we moved here not long before she became ill. There are other people who've moved countries and it doesn't impact them. So it's, it's, you can't look for one source of for reason or pinpoint the blame and it's not helpful. So I would have to say you just have to and those moments where you want to, and it's normally those nasty hours early in the morning or when you're dealing with a particularly stressful appointment or mealtime, you have to keep in mind that your desire to self-blame needs to be looked in the eye and put to the side. And you just have to say, I'm not, I'm not going there because you're not going to help yourself and you're certainly not going to help your child. And it absolutely is not your fault that your child is ill. We wouldn't say that to anyone else about an illness. Why would we say it about eating disorders? Eating disorders are an illness that no one asked for, but some people are ill with and they need the support. They don't need people going, what have I done wrong? <laughs> it's, it's, how can I help you be better? Is the question we should be asking. And, and we have to be a little bit kind to ourselves. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's tough. Yeah. Absolutely. I could not agree more with everything you've just said. It's so important. And I say that to parents all the time. Don't go yeah. down that track. And the, the reality of it is you need all your time and energy that you possibly can to be conserved so that you can use it to help your loved yeah. one because Lord knows it's 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 intense. It is. It is. And it, it doesn't help. And it actually it takes the focus away from the, the problem is the problem and it puts the focus then on the per- person and it's not it, it, what it is is an illness and what we need to do is use the the knowledge that we are we, we have to hand the medical knowledge the current medical knowledge and the support systems we have around us to to build a, a really great recovery to a therapeutic journey for the person who's ill yeah. Now, I remember when I was in the depths of my battle with anorexia, it would try and manipulate situations and play my mum and dad off against yeah. one another. It was almost like this divide and conquer mentality. Did you experience that? And, and how important is it that parents and carers stay as a united force against the eating disorder? Gosh, that is... Number one rule, well, first rule, don't try and look for an answer and blame yourself. Second rule, yeah, united front is the ideal. And we all know what the ideal is and the best way to behave, but hey, we're human. And um, my husband and I have um, a wonderful relationship. And I can say, actually, it's even stronger now. And it's our 30th wedding anniversary this year. So we've um, tried tried and tested this marriage for a long time. Yes. I can say it was well and truly tested. Eating disorders uh, like to, they're a bully. They like to come into a family and divide and have power and manipulate. And the person who is ill is, is not able to to stand up to that. And and so they are being attacked by this, this bully, this eating disorder. The parents um, or who, the, the family, whoever's in the family, it might be mum and auntie, and it might be brother living with the, the person who's ill. It's whatever the family, but it, um, it is very difficult in a, a relationship how the eating disorder behaves. So it it tries one against the other. It causes a lot of stress, and and to see your partner so distressed. You know that they can't speak, or they they just they're crying, or or they get angry, or you don't quite see eye to eye about how to approach a meal time. That they're, they're very it, it's very difficult, and relationships anyway need to to be worked on, and uh, and are never you know plain sailing. There's always lovely contours to relationships. So you throw in an eating disorder, and you're going to get some firecrackers happening there, and it it absolutely tested the relationship. But I can say from the other side of it, how strong we are, and my relationship with my daughter too. 
Mm. Mm. It's very much similar with, with my family. It really has made us stronger as a family. And now that mum and dad have been fully recovered now for six years and I believe that their relationship is stronger than ever. But my goodness, there were times there when it was, it was, we were on tender hooks, definitely. And I look back, I think it's one of the things that upsets me the most is how the eating disorder really did manipulate in that way. And, and really, I mean, it's just like this tornado of destruction, isn't it? That just comes yeah. into your family. And I, like, I vividly remember my mum having to tell the neighbours what was happening because of the screaming matches. Yeah. We live down a very long driveway. We don't have close by neighbours. But, you know, sometimes I would go running off and, screaming and oh or mum would go careering down the driveway in the car as soon as dad would get home from work because she was like I just need to get out of here and it is just this tornado that comes in and obliterates everything in its path yeah I'm laughing here but you know what I'm so glad you said that because I I we moved house my daughter was in hospital we happened to be moving house and we just couldn't get horrendous but um so I went to the new neighbours and I introduced myself and then I just explained my daughter was in hospital and, and when she came out, just so they understood what was happening, she was recovering from an eating disorder and, and sometimes that made her very upset and, and so not to, uh, <laughs> they had two little children. And I remember, I remember so, so many times having to, you know, we run out of the doctor's surgery and you just come out and everyone's sitting in the waiting room staring because they could hear what was, you know, going, sorry. And the, but the people are wonderful when they are, the people I was surrounded with, I was uh, very uh, lucky with that. So the receptionists at the doctors were wonderful. So if I had to run out after my daughter, they didn't sort of make me have to swipe my Medicare card and do all that shenanigans straight away I could come back when things had calmed down and sort that out. Um, Neighbours that just expected it or listened or thought it was crazy. Another example of how it's important not to hide it was, I'd never really mentioned it to my daughter's, my other daughter's coach. She plays um, quite high-level soccer. And she was getting a lift from uh, the coach a few times. And I had thanked this coach for it, I said, because obviously the, the meal times are a bit difficult. And she said, what do you mean? And so I explained, I said, well, because my older daughter had to stay with her and help her with her meal times. And I explained um, what was going on. And she said, ah, oh, it makes sense. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I saw you running along the street outside Bridget being shouting, you have to eat your banana bread. <laughs> and so she'd seen me running along, chasing after my daughter, saying, you can't go to school now eating a banana bread. Um, <laughs> and her sort of not known quite how to process that. But then, and I'm not being too polite to say anything, but once I explained, she kind of got it. And, um, you know, and you and I are sort of smiling wryly and, and laughing here, but when you're in the throes of it, you know, joking aside, it's one of the toughest things. So to those people who are listening and 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 looking for uh, comfort, it, it's a weekly we are having a bit of a smile about it, but it, it's not funny at the time. And it, 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 it is the worst time of your life for everybody involved. And I would want to, to, I just hope people listening can take a glimmer of hope from it. And sometimes a little bit of humor does, does help oh. us get through. Um, and, and afterwards does release some of that emotion that, Absolutely. I think it's really, really important. And you and I both of all people are not making light of it. We've been there in the trenches for a very long time. But we used humour in my journey. The eating disorder hated it. Mum and dad had to at some point because it was just so torturous. Mm -hmm. And there's been some incredible moments that I've shared with my parents since uh, recovering where you just have these watershed moments of, are you serious? I remember I was home. I'd come home for a conference and um, I was just... I happen, I opened the cutlery drawer and I just said to Dad, I said, oh, for goodness sake, I said, why are there like twice as many teaspoons as any other piece of cutlery? And he just looks at me and he's like, do you not remember? And I was like, what? And he was like, so I would take the teaspoons in the morning out of the dishwasher and keep them in a Ziploc bag in my room because I didn't want anyone else to touch the teaspoons. I would only eat with a teaspoon. And, and he said, and one day I just got so sick of not having a teaspoon for my coffee. <laughs> 
<laughs> that I bought another set. And, I mean, yeah. we could go on and on about different stories, about uh, just like stories running down the street with banana bread. I mean, the amount of stories my mother has over those 15 years. But I think yeah. it's important to be able to let people know that you will get to a point where you can have a laugh about it and, and that it will strengthen relationships eventually because when you're in the trenches fighting it, it can seem like, will that ever happen? But ever happen. It, it, it can, yeah. and I think w- when we go back to when I asked my question around being a united force, and you absolutely agreed with that, one of the things I say to parents is it's not even just about being from the same chapter of the same book. It's about being on the same word of the same sentence of the same chapter of the same book. Because that eating disorder, it can sniff out any chink in the armor, and if it thinks it's got a chance at getting one over, then it will absolutely go in guns blazing. It will. And it's, of course, touching in on that human side where each individual has a slightly different way of communicating. So even if parents have the same core values and the same outlook on life and they adore their child equally, they're going to have different ways of expressing that. And so it's a great opportunity for the eating disorder to get in and mess mess with the family there because the eating disorder wants no fun. It, It just wants what it wants, which is a lot of suffering and the united front doesn't just mean that you're both parroting the same thing or standing yes. over you think about there's a wonderful we live in new zealand there's a wonderful set of buckets in cuba street that's an art thing and, yes. and it's up and it's filled when it's full and that's what the family's like your bucket fills at slightly different moments the same water the same experience flowing through you but we each have a different level of tolerance um and as they say now, the window of tolerance for everyone is slightly different. So if you're having this this bucket, this this flow of water through these buckets of the family, you're not going to have everybody explode, thank goodness, exploding at once or, or being contained at once or being self-regulated at once. So knowing and having, making time to have that discussion of when you part with one partner comes back from work, that that's that kind of kind of debrief, decompression time that one needs anyway when you go work home. So being mindful that then dumping all the drama that's been through the day on that partner that's coming home may not be the best time to do it. So just uh, that might be where you bring in your herd of elephants. So perhaps having a friend or a neighbour um, come in and sit or, or have a coffee at the dining table where the the parents can just get a few moments, go for a walk, or al- allow the person who's been doing the minding during the day just to get out and have a walk. So that people are managed in how they are coping and so that when they are calm and regulated, they can convey the same messaging without all the emotions and other stuff brought in. Because going on and the other kids' lives are going on. So there's all sorts of other things that as a parent you're trying to jigsaw in and get right, um, never mind uh, get the support for the eating disorder right at every moment. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think I love your herd of uh, elephants analogy. I, I remember my mum had, had some dear friends that she would just be able to call and if she just said to them, talk to me, they knew that it was code for, I don't want you to ask me anything about what's going on right now, but I need you to distract me, whether that's what you're telling me, what you're doing yeah. in the garden or what you're making for dinner, I don't care, but I need to have some adult conversation and I need to, yeah. to just be taken away from my current situation. And so it can be something as simple as that. So if, if you're listening and you are a friend of, of yeah. a family that is in the depths of, of the trenches trying to battle with an eating disorder, then actually just ask what because it, it might be something simple like that that will is the most helpful thing in that moment and also recognizing that as a family journeys along uh that what they need can change <laughs> so just yeah, checking exactly. in with them and saying is that still helpful or is there something else that I can be doing and just being there waiting in the wings and for them to know that is just mm. so invaluable yeah that's right. And it's, it, what you're saying just made me think. I remember someone talking to me afterwards and I said, well, we were talking about how it had been a difficult time. And they had said, it was hard. I didn't know how to help you. And I think they must have heard me give a talk about support and lack of support or something. So they've, they've tapped in on that. I'm so sorry. I wish I'd helped more. Um, but I didn't know what to do. I couldn't really come around with a, something. And I said, actually, 
looking back at it, maybe that would have been the best thing because the kitchen and the cooking experience was often one of those very trying moments in a day. So I was actually thinking it would be great to have just that meal come in. No one's watching anyone cook it. It comes in. Everyone eats it. No questions are asked. And um, it would take a lot of pressure off. And you kind of lose a lot of joy in the kitchen. So the last thing you want to be doing is <laughs> That's cooking. That's an understatement. Yeah, or someone to do your shopping. So you don't actually have to go. I remember going in and going, okay, well, she'll eat ham. So looking at the back of the packet, try and choose the size of one that the size of ham had a greater amount of calories. So every calorie counted. And it got to the point, I just couldn't go in a supermarket. So my husband would do the shopping, but I'm sure he didn't want to. He was just braver than me. And that that's that United Front. He knew I just could not cope with it. And it wasn't until recently that we started to get the joy back about dieting making dinner in a sort of social situation, that sort of dining and having, it was, there was always this sort of undercurrent of that preparation for meals. Difficult. And we, we had to address that in the last year or so, to be honest, uh, that we had to look back and go, actually, we're, we're still sort of harboring some, some thoughts here that are triggering. And I think all that cooking at home during COVID, it sort of made us realise that we, we needed to reframe or rethink how we were behaving with each other in the kitchen that, that's my husband and I not mm. not our children but it was it, it was interesting that mm. do you feel there's enough support for parents and carers in the public health system no there isn't I think there is intention to see that and I can see the difference between when my child is ill and how things are now and in obviously being involved in global conversations through AED and other eating organizers, eating disorder organizations. I, I can hear stories about how it's at different stages in different cultures and societies and countries, but I don't think there's enough support because, well, part of it is the government only has so much funding and that funding has to go to people who are ill. However, it doesn't account for the fact that Part of the medicine is the family. And that's obviously been that revelation in recent times where the family was always kept away from the ill person. Now we're, we're part of their medicine. But the, the part of it is that the, the government only has so much money to distribute and they have other priorities as well that they choose to at any one time. This is not a political statement. This is just governments making their decision to put money where. And I don't think that seen often as a priority. But we have seen, I mean, there was Greg Hunt's announcement a few years ago about the, the, the millions injected into phone lines for Butterfly and, and there were, were concerned huge shift. And, and uh, if there's something we can thank COVID for, it's the fact that it's brought uh, mental health matters to the forefront, unfortunately, at the cost of a lot of people's wellness. But what it has brought that into a daily conversation about wellness and I think it hasn't it hasn't been able to be completely realised yet. And I think you, you, need, you only need to look at people's experience who live in rural areas and their access um, to to support and trying to get the right support to hand. And again, access to telehealth has helped to a degree with that. But there's there's more to recovery than than telehealth. It's, it's mm. yeah. So. Yeah. What would you, like, if, let's, dream situation, money was no object, you had all the funding, what would you like to see change in the public health system in terms of support for parents and carers? What would be the ultimate, do you think? Hmm. I, this is a bit of a difficult one. I think the education has to start way back. So I think they need to be looking at how our understanding of society about mental health, you know, why that's to do with communities being educated, it's to do with school programs. It's ensuring that the people who are rolling out the school programs, the people who are working in the hospitals, actually understand the the science and the 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 rationale behind it, because often. You, uh, I've heard too many stories, and I had experienced it myself. Of we, we do have gold standard therapies, we do have evidence-based programs. However, the access to the person who who understands that and can deliver that isn't always there. So, for instance, if a, 
a person is spending some time in hospital because of their um, eating disorder and their needs, but the the nurses that might be assigned to them may not uh, be specialised in that area and they may not get the training they need to be able to communicate with that patient. So I could tell you, and I'm, I'm, you may have well heard or experienced some dreadful examples of how uh, people who are ill are communicated with when they are in hospital in a way that other patients aren't. And it comes down to a lack of knowledge, a lack of um, ratio of care staff and um, suitable facilities to help people. But I, I do think we need to work to a wider understanding of what we, what mental health is, what wellness is. Wellness isn't just having certain BMIs or having physical uh, manifestation of that. Uh, wellness is inside and out. And I think working with societies on growing their knowledge of what's going inside, inside their body, inside their brain, will help with how they approach others. And I think in that engagement and that way we communicate and understand the brain working will help us with eating disorder. It will help us across the board with mental health matters. I completely, completely agree with you. Now, tell me some more about your amazing book that you published highlighting the impact that eating disorders have on siblings. Like, What was your aim with publishing? What, What did you want to achieve? Okay, so uh, Disappearing Sister came out in 2015 and I guess uh, I guess it ended up being a cathartic experience but I didn't do it for that purpose. Uh, I just felt that I just knew there was no education master, there was no information to help me as a parent communicate with my daughter, my younger daughter about what was going on for her older daughter. So as I said before, we tried to hide it. We didn't know how to frame it. We had this wonderful doctor who, who helped us see the error of our ways in, in that sense. So I just didn't, I thought if I could just do one thing to help one person and make their journey a little less difficult in some way, that would be, uh, so yeah, that would just be amazing. That would, that I would be happy with that. So uh, I think to this day, it's, one of, or maybe the only book that references or talks about eating disorders in a way that's age appropriate. So I'm also a primary school teacher, as you mentioned, so I kind of was aware of re- that sort of literacy and children and age and appropriate sort of language. So I was looking for ways of talking about eating disorders that weren't medicalized, that weren't focused on uh, topics or areas of the illness that, that weren't helpful or relevant or appropriate to. Um, a younger age uh, readership. So it, it's a book that helps parents platform discussions. It's a book that that I that sits in staff rooms, sits on doctor's shelves, sits in families' bookshelves. There as a tool, as much to help those talking to young children as for the young children to read it. It's illustrated uh, in a pencil drawing, drawn with actual like a kid's pencil box type pencils, deliberately that it, it connects a child with the sort of images and art that a child may themselves draw foreseeably at a primary level. So it, it's done to to help share the message that there is recovery and that person and the illness is separate and that it can take a long time. It does take a long time to get very easy for a child to be able to hold, to pick up, to the cover on it is a, a nice texture. So there's, there's detail gone into it in terms of its presentation. And so I just, I know from clinicians, I get letters and I get people responding saying it's been helpful, which just fills, fills my heart with joy because it, it's such a, a hard place to start to know how to talk about it and what to say. So having, having, a simple little tool like that helps. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's those, those things that start conversations and yes. questions and, and things like that. I've always felt really strongly since since recovering that there needs to be more support for siblings. And I, I've often thought about how is the best way to deliver that. And I really like the idea of a support group or a forum where they feel that they have a safe space, where they feel seen, where they feel heard and understood. And they're not trying to explain to someone 
who has who is uninitiated in the world of eating disorders for want of a better word this is what's happening at home and so this is why I'm feeling this way when they can sit in a room with a whole of other siblings who are going I hear you I see you I get you yeah, I think yeah. that, that would be a really really fabulous thing yes and it's, it's coming up 10 years to when I started writing it which was yeah so coming up 10 years which was around about the end of my my daughter's illness so I I have been talking to people and thinking about where the direction that this book may go in the future and I I look around and there's still it's not very much material there and certainly as a topic so I representing that and the artist the illustrator was actually my daughter's best friend who is an incredible artist so she was in her final year um, of studying and came up with these illustrations so it was a huge and quite an ethically not challenging but it, it brought up some sort of ethics to me in terms of talking with that artist's parent about making sure that this space was safe for us to both and particularly her as a young artist who was my daughter's best friend to go back in to that space that was the eating disorder to 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 draw these pictures so yeah <laughs> it was a big one Oh, well, I think you should be so incredibly proud of yourself and I'm so glad that it's out there in the world and I know that it will have helped so many people already and will will go on to continue to help uh, help so many. Thank you. Now, when I do coaching sessions with parents and carers, I always reiterate how essential it is that they take time out to fill their cup. Uh, And I always say self-care isn't selfish, it's self-preservation. What would your top pieces of advice be for parents and carers out there who are fighting the brave fight with their loved ones? Oh, wow, absolutely. Self-care is that whole put your oxygen mask on first, isn't it? And certainly... Um, I work at Butterfly and facilitate courses with parents who, who are going through this journey and it's one of the big focuses we have is self-care. And when you're in it, you don't believe, A, you have time, and if you're going through that self-blaming journey, then you don't feel that you deserve it, and you feel that any sort of um, focus of nice, uh, soothing stuff needs to be focused on the person that's ill. Um, but absolutely need to focus on yourself. Uh, for me, I would get up. I, I live near the sea in Coogee and I, every day I would get up and go down and I would see the sunrise and I would run. And I had that sort of joy of seeing myself, of seeing, seeing nature and being in nature. And, and the running generates endorphins, doesn't it? Like, uh, so, and obviously, exercise is a tender topic, in me, so it had to be mindful of how that was done, that it didn't sort of trigger anxiety in my other, my daughter by thinking that mum was doing more exercise than her and things like that. So, but getting out, seeing the sunrise, having a run, sitting down with my girlfriend, having a coffee, or my husband, he would go out and train too. He was a swimmer. He is a swimmer. That really, that saved me. Absolutely same. And I think you've heard, it's been talked a lot in COVID about people getting back into nature and it's so healing. And the more I read about it, the more I think it, it wasn't just about the running, it was being outdoors. It was being small in the vastness of our universe. And without going down that track too much, I think there's that whole uh, connection uh, with that simple yet incredible space that is the natural world that, that is healing, that does heal us. And that, for me, gave me a lot of resilience then when I had to go back and face breakfast and face the rest of the day with my daughter. That little moment of remembering seeing the sun peak above the ocean. Or it might be seeing a little bluebird in a tree or seeing the frangipani blossom. It's that sort of thing that really, really helped. And, and you have to be present to see it. So it comes back to that. You can't dwell in the past and all the, or, or in the future, all the worry of what you had to do that day. You just have to be in that moment and being in the present and having little parts of your life that are connected with the present, like the sunrise or the coffee or that sort of thing, then just really help uh, ground you and yeah, you need to be grounded. They so anger you. And I, I really resonate with what you said just before about feeling small in the, in the scale of the universe. But connecting with those five senses that comes back to yes. those whole mindfulness techniques that are used actually in therapy. So you are giving yourself your own therapy by doing this. So it's, it's the whole... 
it's the whole package really then with a bit of endorphins from the run and the coffee and the, yes. the friends, the friends who are there and give you the hug and talk to you yeah. and let you be absorbed in their problems and their world that can just take you out of your own for a while. <laughs> exactly. It just transports you and even if it's only transporting you for an hour. If it's transporting you for 20 minutes, it's it's worth yeah. it. It's absolutely worth yeah. it. Now, lastly, what words of wisdom would you like to give to those brave warriors out there who are still in the midst of their eating disorder battle? Wow. Um, it, it catches in my throat. I just, I see them or talk to them when, when you, when I'm reading about people's journeys, I'm just, time and again how brave people are um, and and what a lonely place it can be for people and so I would love to say to people you are so brave there is hope and you are not alone you really are so Thank you so much. This has just been amazing. And this episode is full of so many gems that I know are going to help so many parents, carers, but also those loved ones who are in the midst of their battle. That You have just got such a wealth of knowledge. And I cannot thank you enough for joining me today to share that with our listeners. Oh, thank you, Millie. It's been a real pleasure and an honour, and I'm just so proud of what you're doing to to help uh, share knowledge and stories because it's through those that we remain connected and that we're not alone, and we we will work all together towards not just each reader's wellness journey, but for the the future of everybody everybody who's making that journey now. And yeah, thank you again. Really, thank you very much. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.